0: Many years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to, to actually teach some beginning Greek classes at a seminary. I actually did that for a couple of years, just part-time. And uh, that was a fun thing to do. I, I just did like the very intro classes. I called it the baby Greek class because my class was a year-long class, but it was really meant to get everybody up to speed to really go in with the experts and really learn how to study uh, the Greek language and use it in studying the original Greek New Testament and all. When I would teach that class, one of the things I, I realized is that there were a lot of guys that would come in. and In some ways, I was the same when I went into seminary. They went to seminary to learn how to minister. And part of that is learning how to really understand the Bible well. But they were presented with having to learn in the program they were in, the master's program, Greek and Hebrew. And, and for some of them, that was just overwhelming. They were convinced coming into the class that they couldn't possibly learn those languages. And so one of my jobs there as the teacher was to to help them to understand that they really could do it. And I had different ways of encouraging them and letting them know they made progress. But I always started off, every uh, every new semester, every new class, I would start off by, uh, by, by telling uh, the students this, that for you to be successful here, you have to do two things. One is don't ever get behind. <laughs> always, you know, you can get behind in other classes and catch up. But the thing is here that with studying this language and moving as fast as we're going to move, everything we do today is going to build on what you learned yesterday. And so if you miss yesterday or you forget this assignment, it's going to be much harder for you to stay up with us as you keep going. So you've got to make sure that you're, you're staying with it, staying caught up all the time. Don't get behind. And the other thing I would tell them is that you really need to start from day one, and especially this first month of the semester, you need to learn the basics here. Because we're going to spend the time learning the basics. We're going to start with the Greek alphabet to start with. And then we're going to introduce you to the concept of declensions of nouns and tenses of verbs and paradigms that you'll learn about how to begin to understand uh, Koine Greek, the biblical Greek. But you've got to do it now. You've You've got to get these essentials down now because if you get them down now, then by the time you get to the final exam, you're going to have the tools that you'll know how then to actually do the language to do the language. And my speech went on to say, and if you get this core basic course, what I call the baby Greek course down, then when you go into the, to the next section where they're really you know, challenging you and helping you pick up and read the New Testament in, the, in that language and apply it, because you have the essentials from what you've learned here, you're going to be able to do well there. But you have to learn the essentials. You have to be up to speed on those. Thinking about that in terms of our walk with God, one of the things that I know for certain is this. When we're struggling to live the Christian life, you know, when we're struggling to really live for Christ as He calls us to live, when we're struggling to grow in Christian maturity, you know, to really grow up as a Christian and and know the right things to do and be able to do them and be able to help others to grow up as Christians, when we're struggling with that, when we're struggling to be an effective servant of Jesus Christ, You know, usually it has less to do with our effort and our desire and and, and even getting in there and really trying to pick up some tips and do the right thing. It has less to do with that and more to do with the fact that there are some essentials of a walk with God, some essentials of a walk with Jesus Christ, that if you don't lay these essentials down in your life, you're going to be struggling. And so that's why we're taking up this series now that's called Essentials of the Walk. They're just some of the basics, some of the basics that we need to know and that we need to apply, because a lot of us know the basics, but maybe we're not really applying these essentials to our life. So we're stepping back, we're learning some of this maybe for the first time, or reviewing. And last week we stepped back and we learned about the first essential of a walk with God, and that first essential is faith. Faith. I won't go back and repeat all we learned, but we we learned a lot about what faith really means, and what it means to have faith with God, and how faith is not something that you just have when you enter into a relationship with God, but, the, but hanging on to the essential of faith and practicing faith as an essential in your life then makes a difference in, in every day of your life and the way that you're living. We're going to pick up another essential today, and we're going to do that by uh, going to the Gospel of Matthew. We were in Matthew last week, but we're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, beginning with verse 16. We'll read another story, another record of something that happened in the life and ministry of Jesus. Last week we did that. We'll do it again today here in the Gospel of Matthew. Here today where Matthew just tells us a, a short story of something that happened while Jesus was traveling. He was on his journey from northern Israel, traveling south to the city of Jerusalem. Long trip when you're walking, which he was, would have been doing. Along the way, we're told that, uh, that Jesus stopped uh, in an area. He spent some time with people, did some ministry there, undoubtedly took some rest, recovery, prepared for the next leg of the journey, got ready to go, went walking out on the road, and as he was leaving, as he just about to leave, everybody said his goodbyes, then then something happens. Mark tells us that that someone actually ran up to him, sort of chased him down before he was leaving town, you know, just as he was getting out of those city limits, he chased him down and stopped him. And here's what he said. Someone came to him, there's Matthew, he's telling us. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Great question. Everybody needs to know the answer to that question, the correct answer. Everybody needs to know that. He asked, good for him. Who was this someone? Well, you know, this incident is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Luke. When we put all the information from those three places together, here's what we know about this someone. First of all, he was a young man, a young man, an adult, but a young adult. He was, in Luke's word, uh, Luke's words, Luke says he was extremely rich. Those are the words you find in Luke. He was extremely rich. We know from Matthew and Mark that that was at least in part because he owned much property, that meant he not only was able to, uh, you know, sell and buy real estate and do real estate transactions and all. But you know, if you owned a lot of land in that day, the, the key uh, 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 jobs, the, the, the key money makers in the economy had to do with agriculture. And so if you had a lot of land, you could grow a lot of crops. And with those lot of crops, you could make a lot of money. He owned a lot of land. He was extremely rich. We also learned that he was socially prominent. He'd already made a name for himself. Luke tells us that he was a ruler. That's the the word that... Luke uses, a ruler. That might mean that he was one of the rulers of the local synagogue, which was always a prominent position in that day and time and place. He might have been one of those rulers of the synagogue, one that everyone looked up to uh, in the community. The fact that he's a young man maybe means he wasn't really one of those rulers of the synagogue because they tended to be the older men who took those positions. Could have been that. But the word ruler could just mean that he was also just some other sort of leader in his community. We might think of it in terms of, was he the leading businessman that everybody looked to? Was he a city councilman? Was he the mayor? Somehow he had risen to some sort of position of that type. And so he was prominent in his community, even though he was still young. He was a leader in his community. The good news is that he was a a virtuous man. A virtuous man, as we'll soon learn in, in reading he was an upstanding citizen, had a lot of personal integrity. Uh, he was respectful toward people, very respectful toward Jesus in the way that he addresses him. We notice he called Jesus teacher, rabbi. who's was giving him a, a, a word of respect as he came to him. Mark tells us that in coming to Jesus, he apparently doesn't know Jesus very well at all, but he comes and he actually, as he approaches Jesus, he kneels down before Jesus. Great sign of respect. Here's a guy with manners. His opening question to Jesus, we learn, uh, also tells us that he really cared about a relationship with God. He was really seeking to be right with God in his life. So, So you put it all together. I mean, here's a really good guy. I mean, first of all, he's just a good guy. And on top of being a good guy, he's got everything going for him right now. I mean, the only thing you don't read in here is like, he was really good looking too. But he probably was, you know, for all we know. But it's like he's got everything going for him. In his life, But even so, there's something missing. There's something missing. He's very religious, we'll see. He is very, very religious, and yet he has no assurance that he has a relationship with God. Interesting, isn't it? No assurance, and he has no inner peace. He doesn't have that rest and hope and joy and fulfillment that comes from a real relationship with God. He's still trying to figure out how to even have eternal life. And by that, he he doesn't just mean that I know I'll go to heaven when I die. He's not sure he has a relationship with God, period. It's a great reminder, by the way, that if you think you're going to find your satisfaction, if you think you're going to find your personal peace in in things like being wealthy or prominent, that's not where it's going to come from. This man had everything, and yet inside he had nothing. Hence his question, verse 16. What does he say? What good thing shall I do that I may obtain... Eternal life. Notice those words. What good thing shall I do that I may obtain? He, he's looking at it as I, you know, he's he's put, he's in his businessman mode, right? It's like we got a problem here. I got a spiritual need. You know, I want to make the to-do list. I want to know what the goal is. I want to know what what work do I need to do? What task do I need to accomplish? How do I go out there and grab this? Like I've gone out and grabbed everything else in my life. Jesus gives a rather unexpected response to him. He says, what do I do to to obtain eternal life? And Jesus, it says, said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Jesus begins his answer. Hmm. In saying that there's only one who is good, Jesus, of course, was referring to God. And the way that he said this has often raised some questions because... Sometimes it almost seems as if Jesus is saying, why are you asking me about good? Because I'm not good. Or even some have interpreted this as Jesus saying, why are you asking me about what's good? Because I'm not God, am I? It's very clear that Jesus wasn't really saying that. We know Jesus was good. We know he was indeed, and is indeed still, the Son of God. But he he was answering this question in a way that would really begin pointing the man back to God. Because what he recognizes in this man is that, is that he's become so frustrated in his search, he's, he's been religious all his life, that now he's turning to anyone. Jesus just happened to be passing by. We don't even know how much he knew about Jesus. But here's this guy, he's coming out. He's willing to ask anyone, what's the secret of, of a spiritual life with God What's the secret? Jesus recognizes now he's turning to any kind of wisdom he can find. And what Jesus is really beginning to make him think about a little bit is you know what? You need to just get your focus back on the person of God and what God has revealed about all of this. That's why Jesus says this. God is the source of all good. God is the standard of good. Look to God Himself. Jesus was saying. Consider what he's revealed about good. Now, Jesus actually goes on. I cut Jesus off there in mid-sentence. Jesus actually goes on after saying this and and he really gives the the man an answer to the question. Jesus continued, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. You really ought to be thinking about God, Jesus said. (laughs) Not just some word of wisdom. But if you really want to know the answer, keep the commandments. What commandments? The commandments that God has already revealed. They had it in the Old Testament. God had revealed His commandments about the way to live before Him. In answer to your specific question, Jesus said, how can you earn eternal life? What can you do to earn eternal life? To receive your salvation, your relationship with God? Well, keep God's commandments. Because he's the source of good, the standard of good. He's revealed what you need to do to be righteous. Therefore, if you want to know what to do, the thing to do is keep his commandments. Now, by that, was Jesus really saying to this man, this is the way that everyone earns a relationship with God, so this is the way you go about it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We might answer that question I just asked. Yes and no. Yes, Jesus was saying that, but no, he wasn't saying that at the same time. Jesus was indeed telling the man that those who keep the commandments of God are those who indeed deserve eternal life and a relationship with God. So Jesus, in a very literal answer to his question, what must I do to obtain for myself, uh, what path do I take? Jesus was just saying, well, if you're, if you're trying to take that path, keep the commandments. Because those who keep the commandments, they end up with life. But on the other hand, no, Jesus wasn't really encouraging him to pursue this way to salvation in a relationship with God because, first of all, there's no hope for anybody keeping all the commandments of God, right? And none of us can even keep one of the commandments perfectly and completely throughout our life. Say, wait a minute, what about something like do not commit murder? I never have. I never intend to. So that's one I know for sure I can keep. Yeah, even so, remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, you know what? When you have hatred in your heart towards someone, and when you start dreaming those murderous thoughts in your mind toward that person you hate, that just reveals your inner sinfulness. It may not have come out in action, but it's sure there in your attitude. And you can find your sinfulness even in just looking at that. To even have those, those sinful thoughts, to even pursue them, to even dwell on them in your mind, exposes your sinfulness. What Jesus really wanted this man to begin picking up, and he was doing it in a very subtle way, is you're looking at how you can obtain this by the work you're doing in your life, by something you can do, and you're just not going to make it that way, Jesus was saying. James 2.10, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. You want to try to earn your way to God by the way of keeping the commandments perfectly? Well, good luck, but you're not going to make it because you even stumble one time, and we all know we stumble more than one time, don't we? Then you're guilty of the whole law. You're guilty of of all the commandments. You've broken the law of God. That means you stand guilty and condemned before God. So Jesus wasn't encouraging this man to pursue salvation by commandment keeping. He was just giving the literal answer. His hope was to help the man begin to understand that earning his salvation is just an impossibility. God gave the commandments so that we would indeed know what the standards of righteousness are and so then that we would pursue those in our life because that's what we should be pursuing. But God also gave the commandments, the Scripture tells us. Did you know this? That God gave His law in the Old Testament to us for, for a very important reason to help us understand that we're sinners and to help us realize how desperately we need God's grace. Because when we, when we lay our lives up against the law of God then we recognize, you know what? I am so imperfect and so incapable of keeping all these these things to perfection. Jesus was hoping the man would begin to start grasping this. He's trying to lead him in a conversation. This young man at that point was not understanding. Notice uh, his response to Jesus. Jesus says, keep the commandments if you want to know the, the, the literal answer to your question. And then, verse 18, then he said to him, Which ones? Which ones? He wanted some clarity about the commands uh, that Jesus was talking about. Were there some particular ones? Now, he knows Jesus was referring to the Old Testament, but he's thinking, okay, Jesus, are there some particular ones that deserve particular emphasis that if I do those, those certain ones, that gets me right with God? Maybe I've been too broadly focused, he's thinking. Maybe I've been too general in my approach. What are the ones that are really important so that I can cross that line? Into faith. It's possible also that he was thinking at this point there's something that, that's required that's not in the Old Testament law. Because we know from other sources that in that day that there were a lot of people in his culture who believed that the way you really cross that line into a, a relationship with God and eternal life was, was that God brought some particular big thing for you to do in life. And if you did this one big thing, this one big act of charity or love toward a family member or a neighbor or whatever, that put you across the line. And it could have been that, that he was even asking that question. So, so which one is it? Which one? Is there something beyond what I already know? Because he knew the commandments well already. He'd been religious all of his life. The other gospels tell us that, that he, from a young man, had been growing up with this concept of the commandments. So he wants clarity. Verse 18, And Jesus said, in response, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You want a list, Jesus says? I'll give you a list. Here's the list. Where do you get those from, by the way? Where do we know them from? Ten Commandments, right? Jesus took the second half of the Ten Commandments. In the uh, order that he spoke them, it was number seven, eight, nine, ten, and then he went back and caught uh, number six. But Jesus gets uh, the last five uh, of the commandments right there, and then he adds on to it Deuteronomy uh, chapter six, uh, which says what? Love your neighbor as yourself. That essentially sums up the essence of what those last half of the Ten Commandments is all about. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus just lays it right out there. Well, these are the ones I'm thinking of, Jesus says. Why these? Why did he bring these out? We don't really know. Jesus doesn't explain. The Bible doesn't tell us. But probably Jesus gave these because they were just so well-known. In which case, what he was really doing with the man was just pointing him back and saying, I don't really have anything new or special for you. It's just the heart of what you find there in the in the Old Testament. It has to do with the, all of the commands that God has already given. Maybe also Jesus spoke this to him because these are, very, uh, these are commandments that if you obey them, your, your success or failure is very observable. And so you can lay your life against it and find out whether you're keeping them or not. Jesus puts it out there for this man and says, this is it, these are the ones, nothing new, nothing's changed. It's almost by implication. So how are you doing? Jesus almost said. He wasn't really saying even these are the key ones. He was, just, he was really just coming back to this place of saying, do you really understand that there's, it's going to take something more for you than just trying to keep these commandments of God, to have a real relationship with God? But again, the man doesn't quite get it. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I've kept, what am I lacking? Is he serious? Was this guy serious? Did he really believe that? All these things I have kept. You know, in the other Gospels, we read that that he actually said, all these things I've kept since my youth. (laughs) In other words, since I was a child, I've done all these things. Is he serious? All the indications are he was very sincere in what he said. He really believed that. So you might say, was he crazy? Was he crazy or was he just a a self-righteous fool? Nope, no indication that he was either. He was not speaking correctly. We know that. But he was speaking from his perspective. He was speaking truthfully, just from his perspective. His problem wasn't his arrogance. His problem wasn't a certain type of insanity. His problem was he just didn't have understanding. Because you see, in that time, in that place, in that culture, the predominant religious teaching was that outward conformity to the commands of God meant obedience to God and the keeping of the law. If you just had these as the standard of your life and you, and you just sort of pursued them as a good person would, well, then, then you were it. You, you did it. That if you accepted these commands, okay, these are from God. I accept that. And if you basically set out to live a lifestyle and in your lifestyle you're basically conforming your life to this, that everything's good. You're righteous before not just men, but you're righteous before God. God smiles upon you and says, hey, everything's good with you. The, the teaching was that the law itself had been given uh, not so much to define God's standards of righteousness. Of course, it did that. Not so much to, to wake us up to our sinfulness. Of course, it did that. But the thought was, oh, the reason God gave this to us is so that we would have the rules and regulations. We would know that we're supposed to pursue those. And if we generally go and do a good job at that, then God looks on us and says, those are my righteous ones. Was any of that true? Actually, not. Among the other errors, it failed to account for the fact that a basic lifestyle of conformity to God's law didn't take away our guilt for the sins already committed. You're still a sinner. You still got all those sins that they need to be forgiven. It also didn't take into account that just because you've decided to pursue basic conformity to God's law, that that means that, that, that you've, you've stopped sinning altogether. It didn't take into account the fact that you're still a sinner. You still make mistakes. You still mess up. Sometimes it's inadvertent. Sometimes it's deliberate. didn't take any, any of that into account. It failed to account that really real righteousness is, first of all, not just outward conformity to God's law. It really has more to do with heart devotion to God. In God's willingness to look upon you with your heart of devotion to God. And in His grace, in His grace to grant to you an acceptance. An acceptance to receive you in forgiving your sins. The result of that sort of teaching in that culture was exactly what you see in this man. He just hadn't gone to the extreme that others had gone because everything in the religious teaching had been turned into rules and regulations. Do this, don't do that, keep this. Hey, if you're doing good in that, you're okay with God. Because it all came down to that. What, what happened was that, that people not only thought they were really righteous when they really weren't. You know, they were basically convinced, hey, I'm a really righteous person. When really, still hadn't been forgiven their sins. And really, they were still sinners. But they were thinking they were really righteous. Not only were they thinking they were really righteous, they became very prideful about their righteousness, which in itself was a sin. And in that pridefulness, that led them into other sins. And their obsession with rules and regulations, trying to, to, uh, to follow uh, every rule, and they made rules on top of rules. God gave the commandments. They gave rules to go along with the commandments because they were obsessed with making sure that they kept it. And so in that obsession to keep it, they became very, very religious, but in the process, they became very, very dull to the reality of whether they were really devoted to God or not. It was all about just keeping rules and regulations. And and as part of that, too, they became very cold-hearted. First of all, toward God. Their whole relationship with God was like, hey, the big guy's upstairs there. I follow the rules. Everything's good. They never really had any relationship with God. Not only that, they became cold-hearted toward others, especially those who didn't follow all the rules and regulations that they were trying to pursue. They became so hateful toward others that they couldn't even see that, that they were as hateful as they were. They, they were totally lost in, in, uh, in, in uh, the way to live before God is one who really cares about a relationship with God. That's why, by the way, that, uh, they, folks like that ended up being the very ones who, who uh, got behind putting Jesus on a cross and killing him. In the New Testament, you run across them. They typically fall under the, the names, uh, the, the categories of scribes and Pharisees, those who belonged to the Pharisaical party of religion, the scribes who were the experts in the Old Testament law. They knew the law inside and out. They knew all the rules that went along with the laws, uh, the law that men had made up. They knew what all the theologians said about it. They were as religious as you could possibly be. But they were so absolutely barren inside spiritually. They were just spiritually dead because everything had become about the rules and regulations. That pride was, a, was a, a killer in terms of having a real relationship with God. That expectation, that suggestion that everything was okay. And so now you know why with a straight face this guy could stand there and Jesus says, well, keep all the commandments. And he can say, I've been doing that. I got them all since my youth. Everything's good. No, it wasn't good. But from his perspective, I'm a good guy. Done all the religious things. What am I still lacking? He asks. There's got to be something more. Because I've done all those. I'm already righteous. What is it? He knows something's missing. He just doesn't know what it is. He thinks of it in terms of a work he needs to do. Mark tells us something very touching here that Jesus is faced with this man. It just... Jesus is understanding this is a, going to be a difficult person to talk with because he's got so many wrong assumptions and he's just so spiritually dull he doesn't even realize what's going on. And, you know, from our perspective, you almost expect Jesus to do, to just say, you're a helpless, hopeless one. <laughs> I, I got to go. But Mark tells us that, that hearing him say, hey, I've already done all these things. What am I lacking? Mark tells us Mark tells us that... that that he turned to him and looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. <laughs> so That is such a cool thing to see, by the way, because it, just, it gives you a little insight into how God deals with all of us. When, when he could be sitting there just shaking his head going, I don't know why I bother with these people. He's, he's, instead, he looks on us with a love for us. He just had a compassion. He could see the earnestness in this, this guy that wants to have a relationship with God. And, and seeing that earnestness, he just aches to be able to help him get it. He just wants to do something for this guy verse twenty one so what did Jesus do? Jesus said to him, "If you wish to be complete, meaning if you really want to if you really want to to lack nothing in your spiritual relationship with God if you really want this relationship, if you want this true spiritual life, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Notice those two things come together. Sell your possessions, give to the poor and come follow me. Now, you might look at that and go, oh, well, here's the answer. This is exactly the answer the guy was looking for. What is the one extra thing you need to do in order to make sure you have eternal life. You just go sell all your possessions, give them to the poor. God says, Wow, that's great. I love that work you just did. You're in. It's almost what it looks like, right? That Jesus is saying that? Wrong. That's not what Jesus was saying. We know that because the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of all the Scripture is very clear that you cannot earn your salvation by any one work or any combination of good works. That's not how you get a relationship with God. That's not how you get your sins forgiven. That's not how you enter into a a personal relationship with God. That's not how you obtain eternal life. It's not your good works. Absolutely cannot be. Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his God's sight. You can go and, and keep work after work and do as many, you know, as many commandments and keep them right. You can total them up. You know, I'm up to a thousand. No, ten thousand now. Good things I've done. Times I've kept the law. I'm not going to do it. Ephesians 2, eight, well known to most of us. By grace you've been saved by. Your works? No. By faith. Through faith. And that not of yourselves... It's a gift from God. Your salvation is a total gift. The fact that you're able to even have faith in God, that's a gift from God. It's not as a result of works so that no one may boast. You can't earn your way to God. Your good works don't relieve you of your guilt. You need forgiveness from God for that. Your good works don't automatically turn you, well, I've done enough now, I automatically have become perfectly righteous. No, never happens. What you need is mercy. What you need is God's grace. What you need is for you, uh, is for you to receive from God the gift of salvation. Titus chapter 3, When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. See, God says, listen, I know... That you can never, you can never get rid of your own guilt. I know that you can never earn your way back to me. So instead, I'm going to step in and provide you a solution. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes. He dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that the justice of God and the righteousness of God is upheld. He will not sweep sin under the carpet and pretend it doesn't exist. Nope, it's going to be paid for somehow. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only one who could pay for it, He pays for it. And then through that, then, God says, and so then I offer to anyone who wants a relationship with Me, who wants forgiveness of sins, I offer to anyone who wants that relationship, that you believe in My Son, whom I have sent. That you put all your faith and hope in Him. That you ask Him to give you the gift of forgiveness from Me. That you trust and depend on Him entirely, and that you receive that forgiveness and enter into a relationship with me. That's the teaching of Scripture. So Jesus was not saying, well, this is how you get it. Go sell all your possessions. We also know this, by the way. Jesus never made a general command for all of his followers to get rid of their possessions and give to the poor. Never, ever commanded it. He even had some very wealthy followers and he never told the wealthy ones, hey, you guys got plenty. Come on, go out, give at least 90 percent, give it all away and then you'll be right. He never says that. This particular instruction, you have to understand, was for this particular man at this particular time. Probably God had given it sometime to someone else before that. Undoubtedly, He's given it to someone since then. But for this man at that time, that was the instruction. But again, it was not going to earn him salvation. What Jesus was really doing was getting at a particular principle the man needed to understand. And that that is that it's not about rules and regulations, it's about where your heart is in relationship to God and whether you're devoted to God or not. Whether you have absolute devotion to God. God demands that. You shall love the Lord your God, he said, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. God doesn't want you out just practicing religion. He wants a real relationship. And that relationship has to be a proper relationship between the Creator and you, the created one. And your proper relationship is that you love the Lord your God. You're totally devoted to Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God doesn't care that much about rules and regulations in religion. What He cares about is your commitment to Him personally. And He knows this. When you're committed to Him personally, then naturally out of that you're going to be obedient to His commands. Naturally, out of that, you're going to want to take on His character in your life. And so that's what He wants first and foremost is your heart, your commitment to Him in your heart. That's the principle that is brought up here. That's the principle of absolute devotion, which leads to the second essential of the walk. Last week we saw the first essential of the walk with God is faith. There's no way you can enter into that relationship with God without the faith which is not just belief, but dependence and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. But then as you're living your walk with God, you're living by faith daily. You're trusting, depending on Him for everything that's happening in your life. We learned that last week. But now we see the second essential is this, surrender. The essential that Jesus is referring to here is the essential of surrender. Being wholly devoted to God by your surrender to Him. Surrendering what? Surrendering your life to Him your life to Him, everything, everything, everything beginning with your very life. Right alongside faith, Scripture teaches, comes surrender. Hand in hand, faith and surrender go together. Faith and surrender, they're basically two sides of the same coin in, in some ways. Faith includes surrender to God. Whenever you come to God and say, I totally depend on You, God. I don't depend on anything else but You for my relationship with You, for my life, for my eternal life. I don't depend on anything else. That's essentially surrendering. And at the same time, real surrender involves faith. Because anytime you're surrendering up and saying, I trust You, you're saying, I surrender to You. Both are essentials. But what we surrender to God first and foremost when we come to Him is we surrender our very selves, our our whole individual self. We give ourselves up to God. Here's what Jesus said about this. Mark chapter 8. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Notice Jesus here says, Here are the conditions for walking with me. Here are the conditions for walking with me. Number one condition, self-denial. The one who wants to come after me, to walk with me, to be my follower, that one must deny himself. He must deny himself. To deny oneself means that you give up ownership of your life. You've been acting as the owner. Now you let God be the owner. He is anyway, but you give him that ownership. You give up living for yourself. That's to practice self-denial. You no longer make your own interests and desires the supreme concern of your life. You shift the epicenter of the gravity of your life from you to God. You get the focus off of you and the emphasis off of you and instead, you're living for God. That's self-denial. Jesus said, along with self-denial, there needs to be cross-bearing. You want to walk with me? First, He said, anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. But second of all, you must take up your cross and walk with me. Those words are often used today. You know, oh, that person's taking up their cross. I'm just bearing my cross here. What does that mean usually? I'm just kind of suffering through the burdens of life. I'm just putting up with the irritations around me, you know? Just bearing my cross, not getting angry. That's kind of what we think it means today, and that's what typically it does mean when we say it. But when Jesus said it, he didn't mean that at all. Remember that. In Jesus' time and place, a man who was condemned to death for a crime, who was going out to be executed, as he was going out to be executed, he was forced to carry on his back. And you remember this happened to Jesus, right? He was forced to carry on his back the cross beam of the cross. He was forced to carry this thing to the place of execution. He walked through town. Everybody who saw him knew what was going on. That's a guy that's going to be dead after a few hours of essentially torture here. The person was to carry that cross. They carried it to the place. They were nailed to that cross beam. The cross beam was nailed to the other beam. The cross was put in the ground and you died there. Jesus said, that's what I'm talking about. What he meant was this. You need to so radically shift your allegiance to me, Jesus said, that you would even die with me or for me. That's what it means to follow me. And Jesus said then, last of all, he used the words actually, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, by which he meant make me the leader of your life. I'm the one who's the leader. You're not the leader of your life. I am. You make me that leader. What's all of that add up to? Surrender. God, my whole life, surrender it to You. That's giving up our life to God. That's something that is meant to happen when we make a decision to be a Christ follower. Did you know that? Maybe somebody just said to you, oh, just ask Jesus for forgiveness. Everything's good. Well, you know, that's essentially right in a way, but... But you know, Jesus wasn't just looking for people to, to pray the words to say the prayer and like, okay, that's good, you, you recited the right language, so you're in. The coming to, to Jesus in faith, remember last week, it means not just that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for me, but I put all my trust and, and dependence in Him. That's my faith. But alongside that, that, that faith means, means this too, that I, I'm surrendering myself up to God. The practical outworking of that is that we we devote our whole self to God. And we give up to Him anything in our life that stands in the way of our relationship with Him. Luke tells us that that one day there was a large crowd of people following Jesus. Huge crowd. In like fact, Luke really in, in his description he, he calls them multiple crowds were following. It's like there's so many people, there were like multiple crowds following Jesus. Because he was teaching, and wherever he went, you know, it tended to be miracles occurring. And so people, they liked Jesus' teaching style. They liked the things he was saying. He was so much better than the scribes and the Pharisees just always reciting the law. He talked about God in real terms. And they loved the miracles. So everybody loved to follow Jesus. And so it got to the point where wherever Jesus went, these crowds just followed along with him. But you'll find an interesting thing in Scripture. Wherever you find large crowds following Jesus... He always turns around and challenges them in some way because he doesn't want popularity. He doesn't want fame. He wants to change their lives. And so on this particular occasion, Luke tells us, he's walking along. All these people are following along behind them. And he says to them all, if anyone comes to me, meaning if you want to be one of my followers, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. What? I got to hate my family and friends and to follow you? Remember, Jesus loved to do this. He would very often remember say something that, that seemed just out of whack. And he did that for one reason, to make people wake up and listen and think about what he was saying. But we know for certain that Jesus wasn't saying, you really need to go hate someone. We know that because Jesus taught that next to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the most important thing was to love others. And in his teaching, he condemned those who were not taking care of their family members and encouraged those who did take care of their family members. So what Jesus was doing here was he was speaking about in a relative sense. He was saying, you know what? He was challenging them to this issue of of surrender and devotion. And what he was saying is, nothing can come between me and you if you want to be one of my followers, if you're walking with me, nothing needs to come between. You have to have that sense of surrender that that even those dearest to you will not come between you and me. The principle is full devotion. The essential is total surrender. Which takes us back here to this story that we need to finish off, right? So here's this man. Jesus says to him what? If you wish to be complete Go sell all of your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me, Jesus says. Why did Jesus say that to this man? Because he knew that this man had never really surrendered himself to God. He had been extremely religious, but he had never personally surrendered himself to God. And along with that, Jesus knew that the biggest roadblock to this man surrendering himself entirely to God was this man's money and possessions. This was something that this man held more dearly than anything else in his life. Money tends to get its grip on you that way, doesn't it? You like what money provides you. It gives you lots of luxuries. It gives you a sense of security, which isn't really true security, but it gives you a sense of security. And you know what? What? Provide you the opportunity to be, even as a young man, prominent, respected, a ruler. And money can do a lot for you. And this man loved his money. And so Jesus just got it right out there in the open. Hey, the issue here is whether you're really fully devoted and surrendered to God or whether you're not. And he pinpoints exactly what the man's key issue is going to be. And so he he says this to him again to make him really think and to understand. Here's, Here's the key issue. Are you wholly surrendered to God? Are you totally sold out to God or not? Or is there anything in between? Verse 22. Here's what happened. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. He walked away. By implication, that means that that at that moment, he chose not to surrender to Jesus. He did not accept Jesus' teaching. It's interesting, it says he went away grieving. What was he grieving? He evidently didn't get the answer he wanted. And the answer that Jesus gave, if he was to follow through on it, was something that at that point, he just wasn't willing to do it. And so, he went away empty spiritually again. Now, the possibility remains that having thought it over, he changed his mind. But, if we, but we don't know that. And if He didn't change His mind, then we know this, the loss was huge. The loss is always huge when we hang on to something that stands between us and God, whatever it might be. What was that that Jesus said? Mark 8.35, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We think that the way that we, we have security in life and the way we get what we want is by hanging on, by running our own lives. But it's just the opposite. It's when we give up and surrender everything to God that we get the real relationship with God which takes care of the rest of life and eternity. So when we refuse a general surrender of our lives to God, one of the things we need to realize is, I may really throw into question, in fact, it probably means you never have a, had a relationship with God established in the first place you know what i mean by a general surrender that that when you come to receive salvation in jesus if if you're not if you didn't really bring your life and yield it up to god at that point if you're just saying the words you probably don't even have that relationship with god because it's implicit in that faith that faith is that surrender to to come to him without that heart surrender is not truly to put your faith in him now some of you may say well then what do i have to do like when i come and I ask Jesus for forgiveness, do I have to bring my list of things I've done to prove my surrender? No, then you're going back on works, aren't you? You see, God, God's not looking for you to bring a list to go, hey, look, I, I gave this money to the poor, and, and I gave this away, and I stopped doing this. God doesn't want that. He just wants to know if your heart is surrendered. He wants to know whether, whether you're saying to Him, I yield it all up to you, and so go ahead and start telling me what to do, and, and I'm, I'm willing to follow And he knows we're going to struggle as he starts giving us instructions. But he's looking at that heart and saying, is that heart really there in your relationship with me? Are you just going through the religious motions? Are you just doing another thing that you can check off your checklist? Oh yeah, I I did my religious duty. He wants to know that that heart surrender is there. And so maybe for some of you, that's a key today. You're saying, I still don't have that relationship with God. Well, is this the factor? That what God really wants is for you to say, God, I just put my whole life in your hands. You're the owner, you're the leader. Maybe you've done that, but you're, you're kind of thinking, okay, what does this mean after you've actually entered into that relationship? Though, What if I if I enter into a relationship with him and I, I don't surrender myself to him? Do I lose my salvation then? I'm holding something back, you know, in my life, but he wants me to, to give up. Have I lost my salvation? The scripture would say no. The scripture would also say, be careful though if, if every time you ask that question, you realize you've never surrendered anything up to God, it may start to call into question something that you should think about, whether you really have surrendered to God in the first place. But no, you, you can be holding an area of your life back from God after you've come into a relationship with Him and, and still have your relationship with Him. But, but here's the deal. Your walk with God is going to be severely hindered. So this comes back to where we started, right? Right? How come I'm not growing spiritually? How come I'm the same person I was this year as I was last year? How come I set out to be a better husband, a better father, a better wife, whatever? And, I, you know, I'm intent on it. I put it on my resolution list and I never seem to grow in this area. Why is it that I'm such an ineffective servant of God? Why is it that these old habits are here and they never go away? Why am I not making any progress? Well, this could be the, the key here that we've left a roadblock in the way. We've created, by what we've put between us and God, we've created a barrier in our relationship with God. So the first thing we've done is we've strained our friendship and our fellowship with God by leaving something unattended to. We also know this, that, that when we put something between ourselves and God, we put ourselves out of place and out of position to receive God's blessings and his transforming work in our life. We're not growing spiritually, we're spiritually powerless because it's not, we're not really surrendered to God and ready to receive what He wants to do in our life. And on top of that, when we don't surrender ourselves to Him, we, we make ourselves less useful, totally useless sometimes as servants for Him. Because He's not able to use unsurrendered people in His ministry, unless He just uses them in spite of themselves. Because, you know what, unsurrendered people, they're not in tune with God and what He's doing. Not just in their life, but in other other areas of ministry. And you know what, because we're putting other things ahead of God, well, half the time we're not even available to serve God when He has something for us to do. So what's the solution to the problem? You've got to surrender. You've got to surrender whatever stands between you and God. Whatever is keeping you from from that relationship with God where he has first place. Because unless he has first place, no progress is going to be made. The walk is always going to be, be a, a stumbling walk with God. So so here, just ask yourself, what are the possibilities for your life? What is it that could be between you and God? Could it be the surrender of your money and possessions? That would be a possibility, wouldn't it? It might be your prestige and your popularity. because Because God says, you know what? You need to be worried less about that and more about devotion to me. But no, I, I can't give this up. I can't give up my popularity, my prestige. That's the barrier in the way. It, it could be, couldn't it? Your awards, your honor, your fame. Oh, there's no way, God. I could be totally devoted to you as you want me to be because I'd have to give this up. Might be a person, a relationship. Oh Lord, there's no way I could give up that relationship ever. It might be a career. It might be a hobby. You know, you go to work and you have a career, but what you really love is your hobby. That's what you really get into. could be that. It could be just a simple enjoyment of life that you don't want to give up. It could be an appetite you have that you frankly do not want to have controlled. You like that appetite. You like satisfying that appetite. God says, this is in the way of a a devoted relationship with me, of me doing a work in your life. Oh, God, anything but that. That's the one I'm hanging on to, God. It could be a a beloved sin. You know, God, I've come to you. You know, Lord, I gave up those 99 out of 100 sins for you. So I'm good, right, God? God says, no, there's one left. No, that's the one I'm keeping. I don't want to deal with that sin. God says, that's the very one that's keeping us from, from a great relationship and you from a close walk with me and from growing. Whatever it is, a close walk requires. Uh, whatever it is that, that you're hanging on to, a close walk requires that you surrender that to God, that you give it up altogether, that you give it up to Him. That sometimes you say, "Well, how do I know what God wants me to give up?" He'll let you know. In some cases, He already has, because it is a sin, and He's made it clear. In other cases, it won't necessarily be a sin. But you know that it's the stumbling block. For you, it is a sin. For you, it is a stumbling block in your relationship with God. When I was a young teenager, I was going to a church, and there was a guy in the church who was always serving on ministry teams, really great guy, did a lot of great things at the church. One day I learned that he was an incredible guitar player. In fact, before I ever came to know him, he had had played in some of the best bands and had traveled around the world as a great guitar player. So how come I never heard him play the guitar? He never even does it in ministry or anything. He gave it up altogether. Why? Why did he give it up? Why didn't he just use that for God? And the answer was that for this guy, he recognized that his guitar playing and that whole side of his life had so dominated his life, his guitar playing had become essentially an idol in his life. And not only that, it had been a constant distraction that led him to places he shouldn't be. And after much decision-making and evaluating, he decided, you know what? God's really telling me this is the thing that stands between me and giving my whole life to God. And so he gave it all the way up. But you know what he said? He said, I miss guitar playing sometimes, but I have no regrets. No regrets. What I gained was much more than what I lost. Now, maybe that God never challenges you to give up entirely on something, but he will ask you to be more disciplined in something. He may ask you to be more disciplined even in terms of, try this one, your house or your boat or your car, that you spend less time on it and devote more time to him, to growing, to your spiritual disciplines, to ministry. My father, many years ago, uh, in ministry, not as a pastor, but in in a ministry of caring for kids who didn't have homes and whatever, made a great friend who remained a friend all his life. He was a guy who who really had no more than, I think, sixth or eighth grade education was as far as he went, literally. But he had a knack for making money. (laughs) And so uh, he had a knack for taking over businesses. And he offered my dad, he said, look, he said, "I, I know you don't make much money. You come along with me on this deal. He said, you just put in a little money as an investment, and I'll even help you with the investment. He you put it in this, this oil company deal we're doing, this oil supplier company. And he said, you're going to make money back on it. And so you, I'm making it easy for you to make some money. And my dad thought about it. And the more he thought about it, he thought, you know what? This is going to be a distraction from what God has called me to do. God didn't give him any peace about it. And my dad let that go. And sure enough, that company made money. And my dad could have been wealthy. But you know what? Sometimes it's just not right to get in those things. Whatever it is, the main thing is that it, you have to be willing to lay it aside. To lay it aside altogether. You have to be willing to let it go. You have to have the passion that some of these Olympic athletes have. You been know, watching the Olympics? Every time the Olympics come around, I always go, No, nah, I'm not going to watch. I'm not interested. And then I start watching and I get hooked. And so I was watching the ski jumpers. You know, there's the guys that go down those big ramps and they go shooting up in the air and they go flying off down there and, and land. You know, those, even in the Olympics, the Olympics, they're going like longer than a football field before they land. Did you know that there's an extreme version of that sport that's not in the Olympics where the record is over, as those guys going over 700 feet in the air? Like three football fields or more, you know, two, two and a half, whatever that is. And they're going down like, you know, they're descending like 250 feet. But, you know, one of the things that was interesting, I went on, online to read about these guys, and one of the things it said is, is that, one of the, that they're, they're totally obsessed to winning to the point that, that even though some of them are very, very tall, they may only weigh around 150 pounds because they want to stay so light to stay up in the air and they're so dedicated that they just won't eat. In fact, they've, gone so, they've become so dedicated to this that now they actually regulate them with a body mass index and if they fall below a certain body mass index, they disqualify them to make sure that they're not hurting their health trying to pursue their gold medals. Listen, God's not going to ask us to, to go beyond what, is, what He wants reasonably to happen in our life. But we've got to have that passion to say, whatever it, is, whatever it takes, Lord, that's the devotion I need to have. And if we'll go that direction, if we'll go that direction, that's when the walk with God becomes incredible. Let's stand up right now, shall we? Here's what we need to do. There's no way to to embellish, put flourishes on this or anything. It's just a simple choice we have to make. It's surrender or not surrender. And for some of you, if that issue is you never had the relationship with God, you may realize this morning, the real thing is, it's not that you haven't believed in Jesus, it's that you haven't wanted to surrender. And you're realizing how foolish that is. So choose Jesus today. Say, I don't only believe in you and ask you forgiveness, but I give my whole life up to you as I ask this but for others of you you know you know in your heart you could you could come up and tell me what's really been standing in between you and God whether it's a possession or a relationship or whatever and you know the right thing to do you need to surrender that possibly you really don't know you just know something's out of balance you know the best thing for you to do today is to say, God, I need to understand. Please give me the understanding where I'm out of balance. What's wrong? But let's make that our prayer. And Pastor Paul's going to come and we're just going to sing a short closing song with Paul leading us. And that will be our statement. That will be our, our way that we sing our surrender to God today. But let's pray first. God, Heavenly Father, we love You. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that just as You looked upon that man with love, When he was so spiritually dense and so far from you that you look on us the same way. Thanks for your kindness and your mercy. Thanks for teaching us the right ways to go. Thanks for your Holy Spirit who comes to dwell in us to help us actually pursue righteousness. Father, we've been thinking about these things. We know we just need to be honest with ourselves as we're honest with you about whether we're surrendered or not. And so, Father, you hear us singing today. Let this be our statement of what we'll do. But, but, Father, I pray that as we go out from this place, you'll give us that insight and ability and encouragement to follow through with surrendering up to you. Our time, our talents, our money. Lord, whatever it is that's getting in the way, anything that we're hanging on to that gets in the way of us, giving to you, worshiping you, honoring you, growing in our faith, Father, help us to do that. Help us to to step forward. And Lord, where we don't know, Lord, keep showing us the way, Father. There's probably more in our lives than we realize that we haven't surrendered. More in our lives than we realize that is keeping us back from serving. Father, we want to have a passion to get rid of those things. So, Holy Spirit, just increase that passion and Lord, guide us in the way. We say yes to you now, Lord. Yes, we surrender.